This episode of the Metrology Today podcast was brought to you by Metrology.net. Did you know that Metrology.net now supports power supply calibration? So if you are calibrating them manually, it's time to upgrade your lab to Metrology.net, software that works for you. Find out more at Metrology.net. Welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert, and I'm excited to have on the show today, Dilip Shaw. Now, if you don't know who Dilip Shaw is, he is very well known in the industry. And really, I mean, when when people talk about uncertainties, he's kind of the the this all-knowing guy that that everyone talks about that does a lot of great work in teaching these things to people. Now he has over 45 years of industry experience and, and we'll talk about his background in the podcast, but he's currently a principal of E equals MC cubed solutions, a consulting practice that provides training and consulting and auditing solutions for 17025, um, 9001 measurement uncertainty, especially uh, that's what he's the most well known for, as well as some computer applications. Um, if you don't know, he also is an ASQ fellow and certified by ASQ, the American Society for Quality, as a certified quality auditor, certified quality engineer, as well as the CCT that many of us are familiar with, the Certified Calibration Technician. Dillip has served on the advisory board of the University of Akron Engineering and Science Technology Division, and he's also the co-author of the Metrology Handbook, both, both the first and second editions published by ASQ Quality Press that and has contributed to the 2010 rewrite of the CCT primer by the Quality Council of Indiana. I know many of us, like I've taken the CCT exam, very familiar with that primer, so many of you are as well. Dilip also participated in the initial development of that CCT exam. So just a little background there for you. Uh, he also participates actively in the measurement related issues through NCSLI and the West Coast based measurement science conference where he presents sessions, papers, workshops, and Dillip is a member of the American Society of, for Quality and Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers or IEEE. He has many awards. I could go on and on for days about the things that Dilip does for our industry or has done, I mean, over the 45 years. But let's get into what you are here for, which is the conversation with Dilip Shaw. I'm really excited to present this to you. And without further delay, let's get on to the show with Dilip. Thank you, as always, for listening. All right, welcome to the podcast, Henry. My the the first time as official co-host, and then a pleasure, Dilip Shaw. Welcome to the podcast. I, I really appreciate you coming on today, Dilip. Thank you. I, so, I drug him out, Ryan. Yeah, I drug him out of hiding. He's been Henry, hiding. Henry did a great job of uh, uh, helping because I, I I know we're friends on or I get, I call it friends, we're connections on LinkedIn, but I, I've never met you in person and, and then it's unfortunate, but uh, I hope to in the, in the future, Dilip. Yeah. And I miss seeing you at the NCSLI. I think uh, you were there one day. One day. Or, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, but uh, we'll probably see each other either at MSC or NCSLI this year. 
For sure. For sure. Well, I, I know I wanted to kick off with uh, asking you, how does it feel to be in the metrology world? Infamous, famous, you know, you're, you're a big name that gets thrown around. And, and I know as soon as I came to the civilian world out of the military, you know, I would hear things about Dilip Shah and, and uncertainties and all those things. So you, you've made a good name for yourself in this industry. So, well, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it is a nice, uh, nice thing to be recognized. And uh, uh, there was a time where, you know, like everybody else, you don't know anybody, you don't know anything. And uh, then you learn from others, the mentors, and then it's time to like, you know, pass on that knowledge. And that's what I've been kind of doing and uh, helping whether it's the metrology community or the quality community, because that's where my passion is. Yeah. Do you mind telling us your background? How did you get, did you um, know you were getting into metrology when you started or did you kind of find your way into the industry? Well, um, so I have to tell you this story. So I got into metrology when I was seven years old. Wow. <laughs> so um, the way it happens is um, I'm a November child, so I'm always like the oldest kid in my class when you start school. I sure. never went to kindergarten. I just started at grade one. And when you when you start school, your parents are, you know, very passionate about, you know, incentivizing you to attend school. So, you know, all the kids get new pencil boxes, new book bag and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So in my pencil box, and, and we used to call it uh, a compass box because I went through the British uh, system of schooling. Okay. And uh, so in my uh, compass box, um, I had two rulers, two six inch rulers. And the first thing I did was I lined them up and it started great at like one inch, but at the six inch mark, uh, there was a slight difference. So I didn't like that. And I said, well, this should be the same. So I asked my dad and I said, which one's the right one? And my dad only had like fourth grade formal education. He was a self-made man. Mm -hmm. uh, but he had a lot of uh, common sense and he didn't have the right answer for me. But he said, uh, that's why you're going to school, son. You go figure it out. And since then, I've been trying to figure out in my holy grail, search for good measurements. So I really can say like, yeah, I started out that I just had a passion for measurements and making good measurements. And every everything I learned, it was like, that was always behind me. How can I improve measurements, whether it's physical or the calculation side and so on. And then, uh, and then the other passion that came about was quality. And I, I worked for uh, Eastman Kodak in England. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, when I started working for uh, Monsanto Instruments in Akron, Ohio, I brought what I learned from quality perspective and customer focus that I learned from Kodak uh, to Monsanto Instruments. And we were a small division in Akron, Ohio of the big Monsanto Corporation. And we were the only division that was really making instrumentation because if you know the name Monsanto, 
they're into chemicals, uh, you know, fertilizers and nylon. And they were like the biggest maker of uh, generic aspirin and, oh, wow. and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I kind of applied everything to our, uh, you know, what we made, our product. And uh, when I was a fill engineer, I started with them. And every time I installed our product, I came back and complained about the quality of our product. And uh, and then, you know, the manufacturing people didn't really like it. Mm. And they said, oh, watch out, Dilip's back in town. And there was a time when uh, the production manager took me by my arm and said, Dilip, you're banned from manufacturing for two months. Don't come back. Because I'd go and talk to people who made the product and say, these are the things I found wrong. What are you going to do to fix it? Uh, and uh, so, um, so then I went and complained to my, not complain. I said, I've been banned from manufacturing. So my manager said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to go back again uh, next time I come back. And uh, when the position of uh, quality manager opened up, um, they made me the quality manager because they said, well, you've been complaining about the quality of a product. Now you has your chance to fix it. And so I, and I got actively involved in that. And uh, part of that, the calibration came up with it. And that was my passion for measurements. And here I am. Uh, I left uh, Monsanto. It became a separate independent division. And uh, I was part owner of, it's now called Alpha Technologies, still exists. Um, And then I started consulting about 23 years ago in the industry. And then I got, that's how I kind of got known in the industry, in the metrology community, because I I started, uh, you know, consulting, getting the labs accredited. Back then it was still um, not ISO 17025, but it was ISO Guide 25. Oh, so wow. uh, then it became a full-fledged standard, ISO 17025. And one of the things that was an issue was measurement uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, labs had a lot of uh, difficulty. And uh, I call those days the wild, wild west days of measurement uncertainty. And in some respect, that still exists. Right. I was going to say, but, is that, has that changed? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's good on a lot better. Uh, so, uh, but uh, that's just a little bit of a brief background. No, and your other great. hobbies. Oh, yeah. Wow. See, Hen- see, this is dangerous. Henry knows Dillop really well. So we get to, we get to find out more about Dillop. So yeah, yeah what, how many, you have hobbies that are interesting as well? Well, I should uh, tell you my hobbies. Uh, I don't really have any hobbies per se, but um, well, I'm I'm interested in almost everything. Uh, staring at the ceiling. Well, that's my eventual goal is to stare at the ceiling because that's where you get your best ideas, you know. For sure. Uh, so uh, holding grudges. Uh, nah, that's that's not true. It's just, uh, <laughs> having having good memory about you know. 
uh, what people said. <laughs> <laughs> that is knowing Dillip. He's like, he will. Yeah, he knows that. I'll be like, this person said that and uh, uh, they gave a good speech or, you know, they need to. Dillip can go on, could go on a little bit of, uh, about that. But yeah, he, he remembers almost everything with who, who, who said what, who did that. Uh, Dillip has, I know he has a passion for computers. I almost, I almost ask him some questions about how, what it was like working with uh, Grace Hopper. But uh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not that old, but uh, <laughs> I, I love, I love the history of technology. And uh, so, you know, what was that? Uh, what was the guy said, I, I never met a person I didn't like. So with me, it's like I never met a technology I didn't like. I, I yes. think I might be similar to you in that. Now, now Dilip, I'm curious. So obviously people know you for your uncertainty work now, like people like me that come into the to the field, you know, obviously you've had a long career, but people like me, they're like, he's the master of uncertainty. How, when, what was that turning point? Uh, Cause I know coming from the military, I was raised on uh, test accuracy ratio tar, right? So you've been more at that higher level during this kind of change than I have. What, what was the turning point? When did you start to really wrap your head around the concept of measurement uncertainty? And it, was there something that helped you really drive that home on, on so, how important uh, that is? So what happened was um, our organization, the Monsanto Instruments and Equipment, we decided that we were going to uh, go for our ISO 9001 registration. And we made that decision back in like late 1980s. And back then the ISO 9000 standard was the 1987 version. And uh, so uh, one of the requirements as far as uh, the equipment management side of the standard was, uh, they mentioned measurement uncertainty in that section of the standard. And um, since calibration fell under my area, I decided to learn about measurement uncertainty. So that's how I got my exposure to measurement uncertainty. And I took classes like anybody and, you know, mm. I was not sure about what it is. And, uh, and then, uh, but I was very passionate in the statistics side of it, especially the uh, the statistical process control, SPC charts, they call it now, mm -hmm, or right. control charts. Yeah, and Schuhart uh, charts there, Dillip. You could, or, he, or, he knows, he knows everything, Deming, uh, all of that. And, and yeah, that's the other passion from the quality side that, you know, you do. And, and I've been a member of ASQ since 1984. ASQ, by the way, stands for American Society for Quality. Like all the different organizations, they just use the acronyms NCSLI, ASQ, and so on. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, we do have a lot of students that listen, so that's perfect. Yeah, and so uh, what happens is um, I learned about the measurement uncertainty back then, and then I applied it. And then when I applied it, I found out that the quarter of the standards we use to calibrate our equipment at Monsanto Instruments 
they were not appropriate for calibrating. Mm. And so I went to my management and I said I needed like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to buy new standards. And their response was, um, "What's wrong with you know what we have? We haven't had any issues." So I didn't get my money. But I was always very persistent. I always spoke out my mind. And that's one thing working for that 20 years I'd worked for that division. They were very good about encouraging that. I mean, that's the best experience I've had. I couldn't do what I can because they allowed you that freedom to express your thoughts and, you know, do the right things. And so I went back with my... Uh, charts, so to speak. And remember, this is the 1980s. Not everybody has a computer. Um, only a few people have the computer and we're still using those uh, overhead transparency projectors. So I had all my overhead transparencies and everything. And I moved each one around and, you know, moved the distribution curves around and showed them the risk we were taking. The, uh, and uh, when I was done with my presentation, they say, you're still not getting the fifteen to $20,000 you're asking for, but we're giving you up to $50,000 to spend. And uh, okay. they, their argument was, if they gave me the fifteen dollars to $20,000, uh, next year I'd come back and ask for more. <laughs> and they say, the technology is always evolving. And what you need to do is we just need to go buy better standards. And that was another good thing about the management I worked for, because once they got the right facts, they always did the right thing. Even if the resources weren't there, they tried to figure out a way to get you to get the right resources. And uh, so then I found out that's measurement uncertainties, just not a check mark as a requirement for a standard but it is a good practice. It is a troubleshooting tool to improve your measurement process. For sure. And it's an improvement process. So, uh, so I applied it just not as a, oh, it's a requirement for 1705 or anything like that. And what was interesting was then in the early 90s, we did get registered and we had our um, initial 9001 audit and I was so proud to show my budgets to the auditors. And they just uh, pushed those things aside and they said, oh, that's that's okay. We don't need to look at it. And I found out they didn't know anything about measurement uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, and isn't but, that still, I mean, that's still heavily current, the, the case currently in the industry. I mean, a lot of people have misconceptions on it. Yeah, and so I, I took it to heart and um, and then when I teach and, and I teach measurement uncertainty classes almost every month for one of the, you know, um, training of uh, organizations, A2LA workplace training. And, uh, and before it was workplace training and I did training for them. So when I teach it, I just say, okay, it's not one of those check marks against a requirement for a standard, but if you're doing it, do it for the right reasons. Right. Do it to troubleshoot your measurement process. Do it to improve your measurement process. Do it to improve your calibration suppliers. And then if you're a supplier of calibration service, do it to improve your services to your customers. 
And if, if the, everybody does that, then it's a really good thing for the measurement uh, community. Now, you mentioned you were making these efforts in the 80s. Yes. So what is, what over your experience, why do you think the metrology community is so slow to change its ways on things like this, especially when it was, it's very clear data wise that it's important, you know, um, what, I mean, do you have any inklings of the, why people are so resistant to that? Well, um, change is always hard. It doesn't matter where, uh, but, uh, the the metrology community, um, I think, is the the traditional uh, the folks that come into metrology. The the U.S. military is their background, mm-hmm. and the U.S. military did a great job of you know providing that uh, workforce for the the commercial metrology community, and. Uh, the U.S. military back then uh, developed a lot of standards. And if I have to give them credit, they were at the forefront of a lot of technologies. Uh, and they implemented it right because they had to implement it right. Uh, being the world's best military, they had to have that kind of expertise, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, uh, so um, they developed the mill standard for 5662A, which was like the first calibration-related standard. And um, they mention in there the requirement for TUR, test uncertainty ratio, 4 to 1 or better. So it was already there. And we're talking about the 1960s mm-hmm. in there. So it, it was there. And uh, and then the on the commercial side, what you have is they took whatever the U.S. military had because whatever standards they had, they were the best, mm-hmm. and they applied it. And, and it was easy to implement back then because technology didn't evolve as fast as it does now. So what? worked back then and if you had that four to one ratio uh, or so it worked pretty well Uh, but as technology evolves and now it evolves at a geometrical rate Mm -hmm. then you need better tools and things so so when you have that kind of slow change in technology uh, you kind of just get you know a little bit uh, relaxed and you're right. not that vigilant. And so you, you think whatever worked, uh, you know, 30 years ago is still good, but it, it isn't good anymore. And, and now you have to think about new ways to do that and the standards to calibrate the technology, which you have at the end user's hands, they're not keeping up with that because if I can put, uh, uh, a simple, simple thing like a digital multimeter, which reads in one microvolt resolution for about two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars in the end user's hand, mm-hmm. and you think about a standard to calibrate that, uh, it's not keeping up pace. Whether we're looking at the four to one ratio or anything like that, 
And this is where now the measurement uncertainty becomes very, very important. And uh, now we have to think about you, you're going to be faced with that reality. And then how do you do that? And this is where you have to take a certain amount of risk, where your risk appetite back in the 30, 20 years ago was, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. Now that risk appetite kind of narrows. And you say, well, there's going to be a risk to everything we do, and we have to assess it. And, right. and that's what the new standards, you know, primarily not new anymore, but the 17025 yeah. standards, you know, about is is that appetite for risk and analyzing your risk. And and Dilip, D- Ryan, Dilip and I have been fortunate to know each other since he gave a class uh, basically at the uh, Electronics Museum. Uh, in, for what, when did you do that, Dilip? Like 20, 2010 or 2009? 2000, 2009. 2009? At the Electronic Museum in Baltimore. And mm. um, by the way, uh, if uh, that's a great museum, and I'm glad uh, it's now Northrop Grumman uh, owns that. Yep. Before it used to be Westinghouse. Uh, so anybody that's electronics, uh, you know, th- that's a great place. Uh, to look at all the old technology and everything. And if you're a ham radio enthusiast, they still maintain an active ham radio station. And I think a local ham radio comes and uh, uh, meets uh, Thursday, I forget, first or third Thursday or so. Uh, so that's another thing. So I've been a radio ham for like since 1996. Very cool. So I just thought I will. Uh, Plug that. Plug your hobbies, your several phones, your love for Apple and all things Apple. No, uh, I, I, I don't have love for any technology because I like to be critical uh, <laughs> about everything. Uh, the, the thing about being critical is um, this is how you improve things. Absolutely. Uh, just, just the fact that, you know, you love something blindly. Uh, from the technology perspective or anything, uh, you have to have that critical uh, thinking and the critical feedback. And then from whoever the the other end of the technology is that uh, uh, they should be able to listen to that. And uh, uh, so, you know, what we were talking about, like I, I said earlier, that everybody has their faults. And then if sometimes... Uh, from ourselves, we can't look at those things because we think what we're doing is the right thing. Until somebody um, shows a different way or expresses a different viewpoint, and if you have that, you know, sort of a thinking to look at from that person's viewpoint, and you say, okay, how can I improve? Because you know what this person's saying, I didn't, I never thought about it. And uh, so uh, you always have to be critical about everything. And uh, uh, so that's the kind of thinking, like whether it's metrology or anywhere else, we have to think about and say, how do we improve? Because if you remain, um, you know, sort of uh, maintain a sort of complacency, that's where it comes to you. And, you know, I told you I worked for Kodak. Kodak was a great company. But where is Kodak now? Uh, do you even hear about them? 
it's a name now the franchise to people. Very but, little, yeah. Uh, but uh, what did Kodak do? They were very complacent in their film technology. Mm-hmm. And, and Kodak had the great digital camera patterns. They had the original digital camera patterns. But uh, they were complacent and, and they fought, the chemical division fought against this new technology because they wanted to protect their turf. Mm-hmm. And that, that is just one story, but you, you hear a lot of stories like that in the industry. So uh, it's important that uh, the technology is going to evolve. Uh, there's going to be uh, some uh, people coming up with you know, uh, disruptive ideas, disruptive technologies. And they're going to turn things upside down. And we have seen that many, many times in different ways. Um, you look at the, the music industry. You go to the Best Buy now. Uh, do you see any aisles and aisles of CDs? Very uh, little. <laughs> very little, right? Because uh, that's where Steve Jobs uh, you know, came up with the idea of uh, with the iPod and uh, uh, the, the idea of music that you can stream. And so that's another disruptive technology. And and we'll see that in our metrology field, too. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of things coming. AI. Uh, AI is coming. AI. There's other things coming that I can't uh, talk about. Uh, So um, I've been involved in, you know, different uh, discussion groups or ideas and so on. Qubit's coming, Dilip. Uh, last week, uh, or the one of the episodes, Ryan had uh, Stephen on, who talked a little bit about Qubit, what what yeah, Fluke's doing, and I'm interviewing them next week. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, and I I, I see it also as because I I taught in the military, so I understand the issues with the you know us coming out. We weren't taught a full a full spectrum and technician level. We were mostly taught the tar when I was coming up, but when when you look at it as you're mentioning technology is getting better, you know, and, and the abilities of the technician, as we're looking at closer and closer uncertainty ratios, that, that quality of the measurement and the training just has to be better. Yeah. And um, the, the, the thing with um, this, uh, you know, measurement uncertainty and uh, the risk part of it is uh, uh, back then, we didn't have the computational power to do the kind of things we do. Mm-hmm. And I, I jokingly refer to this as the BC days and uh, before calculators, before computer days. And I said, well, that thing has changed. Now we're in the AD days after digital. And so, um, so we have the better tools too. I mean, we could have done these same kind of things we're doing now back then, but the effort would have been just humongous. Uh, You'd be spending more time doing the uncertainty calculation than spending the time to calibrate an item. Right. Um, Yeah, like the Excel files that we have these days are super powerful. Yeah, and and the functionality that's just in Excel is uh, so powerful. So when I, um, I first did my measurement uncertainty budget back in the late 1980s, I didn't even know what the the budget meant. And then I looked at it and I said, how do I do this? 
and I started doing it in a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet called Lotus One Two Three, and a lot of people may not even know. I remember and, that. Yeah, <laughs> they probably don't know what LPs are, Dilip. But LPs made a comeback as CDs yes. went away. LPs uh, make a comeback, so it's. And so when I started consulting, yeah, you know, twenty three years ago, and I said, "All right, guys, let's do this uncertainty budget in uh, in Excel." because Excel by that time was pretty popular. And uh, not many people were doing their measurement and certainty analysis in Excel. So now if you look at probably 95% of the labs, they're all doing it at Excel. And you know there are other labs that have their own software developed and uh, they'll be using other software packages like the commercial ones that you know a lot of companies out there. Uh, have their own software, which is not only equipment management, but asset management, calibration management, and so on. Um, uh, but um, so, yeah, th that's the other part of this uh, is uh, the technology is there now to do these things, which back then wasn't. And that's like one of the things that we have to embrace the technology. And I always say that uh, computers, can crunch numbers faster than human beings. So let them do the number crunching, but let's still do the thinking behind it because humans are still good at doing thinking. The AI is not at that scale uh, that it's going to do your thinking for you. Right. No, but it, it can be programmed to make us better. Uh, like in reading... You know, I think last time I was on, Ryan, I was talking about the book Noise, but then there's also, I started reading a lot of Adam Grant, which I, I highly recommend Adam Grant and, and some of his, uh, some of his books, uh, particularly the uh, Think Again. But based on, on this and what uh, Dilip, you're saying about uh, some of this stuff in, in the books, why do you think, I, I have to ask, because you and I talk a lot. Why do you think we have Excel, we have tools, we have all this stuff available, and yet people still struggle? Like, if we go in a lot of places which who are accredited, uh, one of the biggest complaints is, is that you hear is that they don't have their budgets right, or they don't know how to do uncertainty budgets correctly. And, and I'm just curious to your point of view, why do you think that is? Well, um, it, it comes from leadership. And uh, if you have good leadership, then it's not going to be an issue. And I, um, I, I've helped over 100 labs get accredited and still help them. Some of them maintain their accreditation and so on. And, uh, and I see that. And when I say leadership, it could be leadership at many different levels. And, and so on. So the, 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 the labs that have leadership, empowerment, uh, they will they'll be really good at it. And the, uh, I think maintaining accreditation, meaning also maintaining measurement and certainty, it should be integrated into your daily work processes. It shouldn't be like, oh, this is something I got to do. And then it becomes a burden. I got to do it. I got to do it uh, once every two years, a month before the auditor comes in. I better go look at this uh, 
yeah. this budget. <laughs> and 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 that's the thing. And then the other thing is that uh, people um, think, oh, it is, it is one of these math and statistical things that I was never good at. And and you don't have to be good at it. You you need to be able to understand it and then apply it and then uh, have the you know the computers do the number crunching and. To a degree, make the decisions too, because basically you're making a decision based on the risk, um, the the specifications, and the associated measurement uncertainty. So I, I think that's the the biggest challenge that we have. And so when I say leadership, leadership could be not like I'm not talking about top management, middle management, but it could be at any any stage. It could be just within the um, the technicians themselves. Uh, I think one of the mentalities that's always been there is uh, we come up with like our nine to five mentality, I call it. And we don't come with a passion. If you have passion in what you do, that's like the first thing that you need in whatever you do. And I'm not saying that Everybody doesn't have passion. We all have passion about different things we do, different things we like. And like somebody that doesn't have any passion in doing like, you know, measurement uncertainty, they'll be really good at other things and so on. Yeah. Um, Jim Collins talks about it, having the right people in the right seats and aligning the organization on your hedgehog concept, which is what, you know. And so we make it like it is a burden to do it. And uh, it's it's the same kind of mentality, you know, we had before, like, uh, uh, and I'm going to talk about like this idea, the, you know, the one half of the population, the females, you know, they were just basically, that's like, they're supposed to do this kind of work. And I'm a firm believer in, every human being can do anything they choose to do. And so it's kind of stereotyped into our brains, into our thinking. And if we take that out, that psychological barrier first is taken out. And then uh, people will see the usefulness and they say, yeah, this is important. And, uh, And then maybe that will spark the interest. And interests get sparked uh, at different levels, you know. You may not know anything about anything, but then you find out something. So you could uh, sort of uh, spark that interest, ignite that passion. And um, I've seen laboratories, uh, the, the personnel get really excited about things uh, when I go help them. You, you know, get accredited, uh, teach them about measurement uncertainty and so on. And they say, oh, that's not too bad. Uh, <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of labs that will even, I don't, I, I, I hesitate to say willful ignorance, but they almost want to keep their technicians in the dark, like just, just produce, we'll train you what you need to know but keep your nose to the grindstone type stuff. Like they don't see that it continuous improvement. I don't think they always view it as also teaching their technicians. You know, I think that's a lost thing lately. 
And I, I don't, I don't know if it's because um, just the industry has had a hard time finding qualified people. And, and so they kind of have fallen behind or, or what, but I, I, I do see a, a good amount of labs that it's a struggle to get them convinced that they need to train their people just because things have been working. Right. Yeah. And and define, and I was just going to say, define your culture and your processes. Are we going to be a, a, an organization that trains people in-house? Are we going to rely on someone else? Are we going to bring Dillip in every year to train new people? These are, you know, things that you, people have to decide. It's not a day where you just go out and hire somebody that knows a lot of this anymore. Right. Right. And that's why sign, that's why the school's around and hopefully the school's a tremendous success. And that's why Dillip is, is who he is and everybody that knows him. Hell, you, you, you had the example here back in 2009, when I took that class, it was eye-opening to me. I, you know, here's this, here's this strange guy that's into ham radios and carries three phones and, you know, 2009 talking about, you know, measurement uncertainty and these principles and everything else. And seems to know a bit about everything. He's just a, and, and very passionate. And we did a lot of hands-on training with thermal couples and it, it just was such, it was a two-day class and it was just such a Good class, good location, excellent person uh, presenting in Dillip. But when 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 you don't know the guy and you see his three phones, it's 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 a bit it's a bit. And is I don't know if you had a belt where you actually had one clipped in. Now now he has his travel bags that he's got technology everywhere where he can pull a laptop out of nowhere. Usually has what two lap a surface on him, another laptop. You know how many phones? How many phones do you carry now? <laughs> Well, I, a secret agent. <laughs> um, like I said, I, I love gadgets, and uh, that's going to be one of the things when I retired. I, I won't have the money to do that. Uh, so I, I have to like figure that out. But um, the going back to the question, why is it we do, you know, what that is? And, and it's part of a fault of everybody and the environment we live in. Because technology, as it evolves, it gets very specialized, right? Mm -hmm. So when you had a PML guy that came out, part of the PML training was you kind of knew a little bit about every discipline. Uh, but now somebody's either big into dimensional or somebody's big into, you know, electrical mm -hmm. RF area and so on. So it is, it is just what it is, and you can't really blame anybody. But at the same time, uh, I feel that um, if you are a leader, and you could be a leader at any level, you could be a leader at the bench level, and you say, all right, where is that going to take me? And you have to be like that, uh, a leader is usually shellfish. And, and let me kind of rephrase it because everybody's a leader, but you're selfish in your sense that you're going to maintain and do what you need to maintain your interest, your survival, right? Because mm -hmm. that's our first basic instinct. And then you say, okay, what is going to make me succeed? And if you say, if I'm going to do this, this discipline, this dimensional thing, 
where am I going to be so many years from now? How is it going to carry me? And, uh, and that's usually a downfall because if there's a disruptive technology that comes away and takes that job or so, then you don't know. So um, That's a good point. So part of that is uh, when you talk about leadership and changing the culture is um, I always say leadership doesn't come from top down. Uh, you could like do a certain things top down, but the leadership should always come from bottom up because you should be able to go back and talk to your whoever you're reporting to and say, hey, how about this? Now, you're not going to be successful because, you know, a lab has its own financial goals and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But if it's a good idea and it helps everybody, then it works very well. And uh, it's going to be hard because life is hard. You're not going to get everything you want all the time. And, and you should have that as part of your acceptance. Disappointments come, but don't let that, you know, throw you off. Uh, you just have to work at it. And uh, the part of our culture is, you know, we get disappointed and we say, oh, poor me. And uh, I said, yeah, that's fine, but get over it uh, and figure out some other way to do it. And uh, so... Uh, if you wanted to, like, you know, get better at implementing measurement uncertainty, uh, the understanding of risk associated with measurements and so on, uh, we got to develop that culture and then look at the end result of uh, what you do in the lab. How does it impact somebody? And uh, you may have not known how the end users using that item or how that item is going to get propagated down to a certain level, mm -hmm. but somebody's life is going to get affected. Now that could be life or death situation yep. or degradation of life, uh, degradation of quality of life, because that item you calibrated now that's supposed to detect the level of bacteria and food, and that causes all kinds of, you know, uh, sickness, not life-threatening, but it inter interrupts your daily life and those kind of things. And, uh, but because we're taught to show you do this and that's your job is done. What's and you don't think about the, the connection of all the things that go with it. Well, and, yeah, Dilip, uh, is, is that more on ma management, though? I mean, if, if they don't have a clear purpose or teaching the you know technicians on the why, why this matters, I, I come back that it, it's got to be related to back to the company values, culture, and from, you know, from the whole way from top down on this is like what you're doing is impactful and there's i'm sure there's several calibration labs out there that are just people are just sitting there passing instruments all day long and have no freaking idea what they're being used for anywhere like you're talking about the bacteria someone's probably doing that right now <laughs> as we're listening <laughs> as we're listening they're just saying yep yeah eh, it looks good 
Maybe not. Uh, if I read this one way or the other, eh, if I look if uh, parallax there, if I look slightly to the right, I can call it in, call it in, done. Let's simple acceptance, shared risk, uh, measurement uncertainty, just a blanket statement at the bottom of the cert, you know, these type of things, right? Yeah. And I don't think you could blame anybody. I think everybody is to blame. And um it's uh, because I've seen it at different levels. I've seen where the leadership in the lab is really good, but they can't transform that leadership idea at the lower levels. And I've seen it the other way around where the lab personnel are really good and the leadership is bad. Yep. And a lot of it is because we have this... Uh, uh, the quota system, so to speak, um, right. and the quota system. Your number? What's your numbers. number? Uh, number. You must numbers. get ten items out per hour, or per shift, or per. You know. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and, and you know that's kind of cultural because uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, that I, I call it the MBA mentality where uh, somebody's learned how to calculate the return on investment and everything is driven by the return on investment. Mm -hmm. And I say, yeah, that is fine. However, uh, you could get the same return on investment by quality. And, you know, uh, Henry kids me about I love Apple products, but I'm as much critical about Apple products. But when you think about that as an example is, uh, can you fault anything quality-wise from Apple? Because they've got that right, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so you will always, when you buy Apple product, and you're going to pay for it. Oh, and yeah. you're going to willingly pay for it. And their branding. Let's not forget their, you're going to yeah, pay but, for the awesome branding and packaging and all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but the branding gives you that perception of quality, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's just not false perception. You do get a good quality product. And, and that's just one example. So why can't you have the same thing? If I go to Calibrations Are Us and they have that branding and I say, whatever they calibrate for me, I'm going to get a quality product, which is the service, right? Right. And, uh, and, and so, so, but a lot of that comes from the bottom up in the sense that, uh, in, and then it goes up at the level and that's how you build your, uh, um, not only the perception because the perception has to be met by the actual physical, whether it's a product or the service. Right, they have to deliver. So, yeah. so Dill, upon that, yeah, that's such a good example of, and we see that and it comes all, all around. I think a lot of your, listeners out here, Ryan has seen this. And if they haven't, it's, there's a statement that said you can only have two of the three and it's lead time, price, and quality. You can only two of the three and you can get that. And I think we're, we're, we're dealing with that on, on a level here, but might that be part of the problem with, with our industry is that the people that go out and shop on price, right there, they may not get either the lead time or the quality. And then mm. if they don't get the lead time, 
now they're without their instrument for so long that they cannot be making money. If they don't get the quality, the amount of rework that they would have to go. But price seems, at least what I see in, in my view, it seems a lot happens on price. And we're all guilty of it. I try not to be as guilty of it. But at the same time, if we're out at Target and sometimes Target, Walmart, wherever, and sometimes we're like, I wonder if Amazon has that. And you look it up and Amazon's cheaper. It's like, yeah, but again, that's a lead time decision. I have to wait a day or two to get it from Amazon if it's in stock. Sometimes it's not in stock and we have issues. Though, as a general discussion and debate, do you think that too many people are way too concerned with let's go with the cheapest source and not checking the boxes off for quality and or or lead time or their pain is lead time uh lead time and uh lead time and quality and then they're paying a high price or or any mix of those do you think that that has anything to do with some of the stuff that we're seeing and some of the yeah the uh, the, to me, the price is like a lot of times people will buy on price, okay? Um, and I've been guilty of it probably. Or sometimes, um, like you mentioned Amazon, I'll buy it because Amazon Prime, I'll get it tomorrow or in today's time. So I'm going to buy it on delivery. And like you say, you know, uh, delivery, meaning lead time, price, quality, um, so, um, you're but, getting price and lead time there. You're not getting that experience on maybe that you're talking to somebody and really they're listening to you and really defining what you need, right? You're like, Oh, this looks cool. I, I'm yeah. assuming this, right? We've all done it. Oh, this looks really cool. This picture looks neat. I think I can use it. Oh yeah. Now that's what, what, what happened. I just bought, but, uh, yeah. But, but then the Amazon delivers it. And the delivery person throws it uh, right in the middle of my, uh, you know, yard. Yep. And then the, the package is socked by the time I retrieve it. Uh, and, and my thought is, I don't want to compromise. I want all, all three. Right. right. And you can have all three um, if you are a deliverer of service or a product is you could have all those three. And uh, well, that's the argument here, right? Because yeah. when you have all those three, you become so busy that something drops. And it's usually, if you're going to maintain quality and price, lead time's usually going to drop drop off if you become that busy and can't scale. And then that goes back to our continuous improvement. If If you have the culture and you have things and you have the planning, which not many people do have this one where they can maintain all three, that's that's another story. And in our yeah. industry, I can tell you, I don't think anybody has all three in, yeah. in this in metrology. But, but they're they're like I've helped a couple of mom and pop labs get sure. accredited. And the, the first reason they got accredited was they had to get accredited because they were gonna lose a significant percent of their business mm-hmm. if they didn't get they accredited. Right. So that that was being coerced into getting accredited. So they did get accredited. And then they saw the value. Yes. And how much business that brought them. And and then they really thrived on all three of those things. For a while. Yes. And then they didn't ask this question. What do you want to be when you grow up? And, and that is one of the things that 
lot of times any business, whether it's a laboratory or anybody, doesn't think about. And that's where they kind of drop out of one of those three. Well, or they expand out, uh, right? We talked, I talked earlier, they expand yeah. out into something they have no business in being in. They don't understand. Yeah, I earlier, I, and I say that earlier, we talked, yeah. I, I, I mentioned hedgehog concept. And for those that don't know what that is, it's based on a good to great, a book Jim Collins wrote. He wrote, he's written several books, very, very good book. And it talks about what are you deeply passionate about? What can you be the best in the world at? And what drives your economic engine? So what Dillip's saying, these labs have success. I think what you're saying, they they have success here. And then they're like, oh, I can go duplicate it over there. But they're not as passionate when they go to duplicate it, right? They're not, they don't have what they initially had, the magic, and then they diversify. And again, then what do they want to be when they grow up? Now, I was doing one thing exceptionally well. And over here, I'm doing it very okay. And you start putting energy to the thing that's very okay. And the thing that was exceptionally well, that energy is drawing out that energy, right? Yeah. So so a lot of times it's the planning. Um, And uh, this is one thing I I tell my clients that uh, whatever you're trying to do, make sure you spend 95% planning and 5% implementing. And what do they do? They do 5% planning and 95% implementing. Yes. And you told me that way back in 2011, and I probably did 10% planning <laughs> and 90% implementing. And, yep. and you learn the hard way and you and people repeat it. Oh, next time I'll do uh, 40, yeah. 60, 50, 50. But yeah, there's some magic number in in that, that it is it is the planning. And you always you always tend to great people and great cultures and the right leadership, they miss a lot less. We're all human, so to speak. We all we all bring bias to the equation. And a lot of us won't recalibrate our thinking on things. So that's another that's another uh, issue. But. So one of the things uh, going into that thought process is um, I always am very good at breaking things. So um, what do I mean by that is in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about what can go wrong. Right. And, and you know, that is that risk-based thinking, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so um, uh, one of the things we should be asking ourselves is, if I do this, what can go wrong? And this is more qualitative risk-based thinking. But that is a good sort of a simplistic thinking. And there are a lot of other risk-based tools uh, that do that kind of thing. One of a really good one is, uh, you know, failure modes and effective effects analysis, right. FMEA. Yep. So you, if you're implementing anything as a lab, as an organization, or as an individual, as a technician on a bench, or a manager or a supervisor in the lab, we should always be thinking that in the back of our head, what can go wrong? Yeah, today I have these five multimeters to calibrate, but I have one calibrator. What if the calibrator dies? What do I do? So part of that, what can go wrong is you should always have a plan B. And uh, so part of that, uh, sort of a broad-based risk thinking is if you have that thinking, 
And then uh, this uh, planning implementation, that is part of the planning process that you say, okay, what can go wrong? And then you implement it in this way uh, and, uh, and then minimize your risk. And then part of that culture that you develop from that perspective is everybody's thinking this way. Says so I'm going to be proactive about things, right? And uh, and and that is the risk-based thinking at a higher level. But then everybody should be implementing at their local level on their own things and say what can go wrong, right? Look uh, for the blind spots. Right. Yeah. Because that's that's what we're not looking for. I was yeah. you're saying this and I, I'm shocked because recently I talked to somebody and I, I my question was it was in an email and I said, is it really that bad? Right. And it was a, a question in, in involving something uh, involving like customer service and, and this and that. And, and it was in our industry. And the person said, yeah, they can't get answers. Like with the pandemic and everything, no one has not, it's not a no one, but a lot of people didn't have a plan B scenario like, like they'll talking about. And even us, our vendors, we have hard times getting responses from now. It's, and that's what, that's part of the reason why you ask these questions. Like what are organizations doing where they're sending equipment to, to people and then they're asking and they can't get answers. We were having problems even get quotes for calibration the other day for, for certain for certain samples, I'm not going to say what because that'll that'll lead to the industry and 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 specifically who. But uh, certain certain samples uh, we were requesting and we couldn't get a res- we couldn't get a response. Mm-hmm. And and I had a similar thing. I was talking with a client uh, two days ago, and they have a primary standard, and uh, to send it back to the uh, supplier. It's going to be a 60-day wait. Now, that's completely unacceptable. No, you know? no. But uh, if I was that supplier and if I had that um, and if I was their customer, I would say, okay, what's your plan B? And if they didn't have a plan B, then I would be looking at uh, my plan B. Who am I going to send it to? Right. And uh, so you can look at it from a supplier or a consumer point of view and minimize that risk. It's hard, though. It it is. And I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. It's easy for me to say that. Oh, yeah. Your plan B is going to be hard in in some cases. And and sometimes it's very easy. For example, one of the one of the harder ones that we ever had and love them to death is 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 NIST. They decided you can watch a video on on YouTube about the million pound uh, dead weight machine. They took half of the weights out of it and and calibrated them after you know sixty years, and they were down for over six months. So what is yeah. the plan B when primary standards are required? No one else has a million pound dead weight machine yeah. uh, that I know of. I mean, there might be someone out there, but I don't know of it. That's a lot of weight uh, <laughs> and. If they do, cool. This is the only one that has it. So the plan so, uh, B was was going back to we had control charts. We knew we had at that time. I think we had a history of like five five measurements, and we said, "Hey, we know we have the control charts. We know we have this. We're okay. Like we can expand our, we can extend our 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 interval out another, you know, three months till they're done." 
Yeah, so. and and this is what I exactly told my client, and I said, uh, "Do you have control charts like we talked about?" And they had unfortunately not implemented that part. And that's yeah. that was in the other standard because we were talking about part of the Dilip and I. Part of the reason we're, we're both on here. Well, you know, Ryan, thank you for having us as, as always. But brought Dilip on is to talk about some of these things. Uh, Dilip's talking about control charts, but measurement assurance. And and now Dilip and I have worked on some videos together, whiteboard videos. And the main one here that ties almost everything together that Dilip's putting new new training together is on measurement confidence. And uh, we have these videos on YouTube. If people want to go to them, a shameless plug here, but it's, you know, Morehouse's YouTube. There's three whiteboard videos on measurement confidence. There's one on TUR and why that matters. And there's another one on risk. All topics. We didn't, Dilip mentioned all of them today, but now now really measurement confidence is, is one of the bigger ones, uh, Dilip, that you're, you're yeah, passionate so, about. So measurement confidence encompasses all the kind of things we talked about today, really. Because, um, and the way I think Henry's video is, and, and we're not trying to plug Morehouse no. or E equals MC Cube solutions. Oh, but I'll, I'll put a link in the description to it. I think it would yeah. be good for people to be able to, to see that. So yeah, Henry, and, if you can hook yep, me up with yep. that. And yep. our, our aim is to educate the metrology community. And uh, I mean, I never tried to sell my product because I've never had to do it. Um, uh, all these years I've worked at, it's to educate the community. And uh, uh, if you do that, uh, and it's just like what we're talking about, if a business delivers all those three things we talked about, they will not have to worry about meeting their you know, bottom line. Yep. That return on investment will come. Um, so um, if you implement, you know, the, the measurement uncertainty, the metrological traceability, and your risk management, that gives you the measurement confidence, well, whether you're at a supplier level or at the consumer level. Yes. And it also helps us out a lot, Dilip. So, so it, is, it does benefit us because if people yeah. are learning... Guess what they're gonna guess who they're gonna start going to when they need when they do have the needs. They're gonna go to the right people mm-hmm. and the right places. And the other the other ones, maybe they'll forget about some of those three things that we talked about. Maybe not not we don't want them ever to forget about quality and lead time, but maybe they'll pay 10% more because they know they the service that they get is far better. Maybe these things happen. Maybe they're they they view all this stuff. They're more educated and they know better questions to ask. As a as a business, as we take on you know a lot of commercial work, when people when our customers are better educated, it's a better experience for both of us. And that's underlying reason for doing some of this stuff is Dilip saying is to to educate the community. But it makes us all better when we're all speaking the same language. And it's yeah. A, you, yeah. Yeah, so, so when I do classes and I, I tell the attendees and I say, if I can teach you to be better consumer of calibration services, that will be the best thing you could do. And I'll give you an example. So when I worked at you know my previous employer, we had a customer uh, and that was a very important customer to us. And they were pretty demanding. And everybody in manufacturing would be complaining at, yeah, so-and-so, they want this this time. 
on this production lot, and they would actually come and uh, view their product before they will allow us to ship it to them. And they were a worldwide organization. We shipped their products, you know, everywhere. And everybody in the manufacturing would complain about that. Yeah, this time they came and they did this and they want this. And I say, don't worry about it. Let's see if we can fix it. Um, and they said, what do you mean? You're just kind of, you know, whatever you're doing, you're accepting it. I said, no, they're helping us become better. And that's the culture. If you were a supplier of services yep. and you had a demanding consumer, you should have. And if you have that attitude uh, from the quality perspective, the business will come to you. That's right. Uh, sure. Only only caveat, as long as they're right. Because if, if, if either one of them said, I need a TAR, of the, there are words that after, you, again, part of education, if someone starts, hey, I need an accuracy of 0.001, and you're like, well, our standards are 0.002, we can't give you that. Why can't yeah. they're not? Yeah, there are, there needs to be that. The caveat is there needs to be the level of education where, where and Dilip, you said it, where the consumer is educated and they know exactly what they need. They know that there's value in what you do and what you can provide. Then if they want to be demanding, uh, it's fan, it's yeah. absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And there are times like they made demands and we say, this is not possible, but we can do this. And, and then they would understand that. But you had a good sort of a, a, a dialogue. It was a teamwork dialogue, dialogue instead yep. of being an adversarial dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those kind of dialogue needs to exist within the metrology community, between the suppliers and consumers of services. Right. And, and, and the consumer needs to be not because... I'm going back to this, and, and Dilip, you know, because Dilip and I just Dilip helped on uh, helped me tremendously on on writing the the new chapter of the metrology handbook on decision rules, which just and this shared risk or simple acceptance is something that the 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 debate is all over the place now, and and consumers don't know what they're getting when. A lot of them, some do, uh, do not know what they're getting when they get when they get a certificate that does not uh, take measurement and certainty into account. And that's well, Henry, uh, Henry. One yeah. of the things I was going to add when we were talking about, you know, those three things, and one of them is sacrifice. It's usually the customer that doesn't understand, you know, in the product that they're receiving. Hey, I received a certificate that just tells me it passed. No results. Yep. No nothing. Like they, that 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 sacrifice is in there. And so, it goes to the customer a lot of times. So, so let me let me tell you a story about uh, the, during the classes I do on uncertainty. I ask the attendees to share their calibration certificates, <laughs> and we we critique them. And uh, I will not tell you what percentage of certificates I find wrong and okay. these are all accredited oh, labs all right all right, all right. I'm, I'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to do the uh rough he won't tell us that can you tell us if it's over 50 percent uh yes it is okay <laughs> yeah. and and a lot of times i'm nitpicking uh so I, if i find a typo or grammatical error i will point that out okay is that in if the 50 percent Yes, it is. Okay. But the, the major, like the big errors are 
they have not expressed their uncertainty properly. They have not expressed their decision rule properly. They've made a statement of conformity. And uh, so there's all kind of things that are out there that are just like a low-hanging fruit for me to pick. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the attendees are surprised, but they are an accredited provider. Mm-hmm. And I say, that's why you wanted to be an educated consumer of calibration services. So you could uh, first choose the proper provider. You could specify the things you want. Now, if they don't deliver it, yep. then that will make them become a better supplier. And you have to, and they have to be, because accreditation is only a snapshot. It's people yeah. coming in for X number, X, and it's a snapshot. And all the accreditors are going to tell you the same thing, right, Dilla? You on that side? It's a snapshot. They're going to yeah. come in, mm-hmm. they're going to watch, and it's a snapshot. You do it frequently enough, and you get better. If you have a culture of continuous improvement, you're always getting better anyway. In in fact, yeah. we're to the point we're gonna we're we're carrying to a we're going to carry two accreditations because we want to be, I want, well, I shouldn't say we, I want, I want our organization, but it it is a, it is a, it is a, we, we all decided together that it's a good thing. We want to have an audit every year. That's it from, from different, from a different set of eyes. Um, And we're going to have it. It's, it's going to be, we're going to have, we're going to have. So part of that, part of that culture that I say, uh, you know, what can go wrong that if every individual thinks, is you are basically auditing yourselves every day, every every yep. um, activity you do. Yep. And and then the kind of thing like I tell the labs is you should never be preparing for an accreditation audit if you're um, following the rules. Somebody right. can come in at on the spot surprise audit, and if you're following the rules, you shouldn't be worried about anything. And uh, if that's the culture you develop, then that's a great thing. But if you're preparing for an audit, then that's kind of the wrong message. Well, it's like the, the preparation, the preparation should be, we're going to have these people in that are going to suck a lot of our time. So we should do our planning to make sure we get our work done around it. Not, not scrambling to get stuff yeah. done for accreditation. Yeah. Oh, hey, we got to look like we are doing things right real quick. Yeah. yeah. No, no. There's a so lot of locations the- in the military that did that, you know, like, but that's, you're right. It's leadership and culture. Like I really got out of this discussion today, uh, that culture beginning from your, your everyday technician, brand new or not, you know, it, it does start at that, that, and in many cases, that is your customer facing people. You know, are the are those younger the the younger generation, and you definitely want them to be on board with how you feel about that quality process and and, and the best best culture. Uh, like I said, I work for Eastman Kodak in uh, uh, United Kingdom. Um, when I got hired, they basically sent me to their Kodak School of Indoctrination the first week. Wow! And this is where they basically told you what we expect of you. Yep. And they said, when you are in front of a customer, you are Mr. Kodak. And I mean, that was like the best training you ever had. And and then you know what your expectations are. 
and a lot of times we hire a personnel in, you know, lab. We say, yeah, go and see Joe so-and-so and, -so, and uh, uh, he or she will, you know, teach you uh, whatever you need to do. Uh, and then if that uh, person has their own thinking of what's expected, that's what you're going to do. And that's not the good leadership, you know, nope. in that way. Right. No, nope. no, that's such a good thing. So, hey, Dil, I have a question for you. This is this is one that I, Ryan, I talk to Dilip a lot. This is one I've never asked him. So I'm kind of excited about this one. Great. Uh -oh. So, so. <laughs> And it's if you could have a giant billboard at the next NCSLI conference, what would it say? Wow, that's putting me on spot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but here's my on the spot uh, spontaneous answer. Okay, uh, think with an exclamation point. Right. Honestly, that's that's good because I I, was, I I I thought you might say because Dilip and I talk a lot. I think we talk a lot about the assumptions. Mm -hmm. like you read all you read all of these papers, but it does go with his his the think right. We read all of these papers and you read the you read them and everything else, but the assumption on a lot of these papers and and listeners to this and that go out and read them are that the measurements are centered. Right. Uh, and Dilip and I have done a lot of work on lo location of the measurement, CPK. But you read the papers and it all assumes that everything is, is, is always centered. So if you start thinking or rethinking about things and say, what am I really reading and what was the assumption going in? Very few places talk about this. I think the introduction to statistics and metrology, they met, Colin mentions it in, in, in his book, and certainly Dillip mentions it a lot, but we're not seeing this industry wide. We're not seeing this think, right? Yeah. This, this, this global, like, what am I reading and what are they really saying? Yeah. I mean, you asked me about one word, um, but, you know, uh, what was that in the 60s and the hippie days? They, there's a question authority. Uh, oh, yeah. And there was a th sort of a thought to that in the asset. But my thinking, and if you ask me what would I, if it was a phrase, I'd say um, question everything. But it's really thinking, if you had to summarize that. You, you got to think about what you read. And uh, uh, of course, we could all, all three of us could read the same thing. And we would have a completely different meaning out of whatever we're reading. Right. But, right. but that's, that's fine because that's what people do. And, uh, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing because that diversity of thought makes you better. It, it and, does. Mm -hmm. And it's a learning thing. It's a passion yeah. for learning. What, what, are they, what are they telling me? When they say I need a TUR of X to N to whatever TUR, what's that standard really saying? Have they thought things through? I, I still don't understand some of the standards where, where the decision criteria is, yeah, the, uh, is based is, on TUR. I, I don't. This is the problem like in the industry is uh, uh, when um, the industry writes standards, the standards are supposed to be consensus-based. Right. And uh, now the, the problem is uh, if it's, you know, electrical standard, electrical based standard, uh, and you'll have people from the electrical industry participate in making those standards. 
Now, a lot of times they come from OEMs, so they have their own agenda to push. And sometimes that gets written into the standard. And then when you yep. come up with something, and then it may apply to the electrical side pretty well, but it may not apply to the dimensional side or uh, thermodynamics or so. So, and there are things like that, you know, where somebody says, oh, you don't need to worry about taking this into consideration in your measurement uncertainty budgets. And I said, yeah, that may be true, but question it. Mm -hmm. uh, evaluate it. It may be true. It may not be true. But if I was assessing you, then I would want to know why do you think it should be included or it should not be included as your uncertainty budget contribution. And so part of that, the, the word think is everything you do, whether you develop measurement uncertainty budgets, is you should think about it and say, why should it belong? Why shouldn't it belong? And show me. And the only way you could show it is to include that contribution and you think it should belong there because it is significant or you have to prove it to me, it's not insignificant. And uh, by the way, I don't do any assessments for any accrediting body because uh, my problem with that is if I find something wrong, I want to so desperately tell them how to fix it. And I can't do that as part as of an the assessor. assessment. Yeah. Yeah. So I would rather be on the other side. Uh, so I like helping labs getting accredited. Because then if I find something, I can tell them, hey, this is not right. It doesn't meet the requirement. Right. And you, here's how you, to fix it. You do a lot of help with the internal audits. So yeah, I, yeah. I love doing yeah. the internal audits because uh, I love I, having you do internal audits. When yeah, we you're you the do fixer audits. <laughs> yeah. You and, get better. And, and being a consultant is like being a lawyer. In the lawyer, you're, you're like defending your client. Wow. Oh. Yeah, Ryan, it's bad because the the one deficiency we got uh, for we missed the issue date, the calibration date, and the issue date. So I tell Dillip, he's like, I told you all about that. Remember when I was down there and did the internal audit? I told you all about it. You wanted to argue with me. Well. <laughs> I, I love those moments. Uh, not the fact that you got the deficiency because I, told I don't you care. So. But, yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, you I, missed something. It's yeah. fine. I they, I should have I should have listened. Uh, they, shame they, on the whole me. idea is like whatever you do, you have to have fun. And you know, yeah, yeah we're serious about everything, but you you gotta have the humor and mm -hmm. uh, uh, that that makes the job fun. And and you're doing it where you wanna make the world, you wanna leave the world a better place to be than what you started with, you know? Yeah, you want your own purpose, right? I mean, why do yeah. we why do we get up each day? Why do we do anything else? So yeah. it's it's it, people just go to work, don't think much of it, go home, do the thing. It's why not have a purpose? Why not be engaged? Why not make a difference somewhere? The measurements, and I've said this all the time, I come on all the time, Ryan, and you know, the measurements you make make a difference. If you mm -hmm. pass something that's bad, we, we see it. 
bridges collapsing, other things. Dillip, Dillip audits lots of, not audits, Dillip helps with internal audits. So he does, technically he audits, but he doesn't audit, audit, like accreditation audit. He does internal audits and goes into places and helps them make better measurements, helps them with uncertainties, the control charts, all of, all of that, all of that other stuff, but it makes them better. And a lot of people, uh, I know I've known Dillip through the years. A lot of places love it when somebody comes in that makes them better. You know, it's great that he's hard and great that he's nitpicky. So, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, calibration metrology is super important society wide. But, it, you know, uh, everyone's going to throw their phone. We're, we're reaching the end of our time, Dillip. This has been like the fastest uh, an hour and a half has gone by ever. Well, it, I have some it's questions. Been incredible. Okay. Yeah, I sure. have some questions for him to, to, to end that with it. it Ryan tells me that people fall off a little bit on the podcast. So let's ask Dillip some, a little, some fun questions here. So, uh, questions I don't even know. Right. So it's, and I speak to Dillip weekly and I don't even know. So Dillip, who is your hero? Who's my hero? Um, I have actually two heroes and they're like far, far apart. Like, uh, so my first hero is Einstein. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Einstein did some fantastic things. Yes, in the patent office, he was a good. He was a good patent. Yeah, and viewer, and so. you know, uh, even today, people <laughs> people in the AD days, after digital days, trying to prove Einstein's calculations wrong, yeah. and they're still fine. He's right. So Incredible. Einstein is my hero in that way. Who's your second? And, and my other hero is uh, Gandhi. Uh, he, he achieved something uh, which, you know, uh, he was able to force uh, independence from India by, for most part, nonviolent means. I mean, he didn't profess yeah. and he didn't encourage. I mean, sure, there was violence and so on. But I find that incredibly powerful that somebody could bring about change like that. Um, you know, to a whole country and have that uh, thought process and, you know, have that. Because I don't think I would have a patience to, like, resist something and be and violent. And I would, like, strive to be that person and have that patience and thought That's to fair. counter, you know. So those are, like, instead of one hero, those are the two heroes and they both have remarkable qualities and, and they, they both had faults and you could read about them and they had faults because as human beings, we're not perfect, but of those course. are like great personalities. And that's why they're like at the one end of the extreme to the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I would have uh, guessed Einstein from the name of the company, but number two would have been Fonzie for me, buddy. I would have thought Fonzie would have been your. That's, your that's the fun part. But uh, <laughs> uh, at, at the higher level of thinking, uh, like I would just like to get into their mind. And uh, oh, like sure. uh, every time they say, yeah, if you had one person to like talk to, uh, those would be like the two guys I would love to have a conversation, you know, one on one with them. Would would Fonzie be at the table with them? No, I mean it's it's fun to have that, but uh, uh, the, those are like the the serious ones. Fonzie and the others are like fun. 
to have. Yeah, sixties, sit on it. You're, 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 you, we didn't even say sit on it. This, this podcast, can you dig it? Lay it on me. None of the sixties hippie terms came up. I, Ryan. I have like, uh, I'll integrate them into the opening music. Yeah. The one of the things is that's good is we have to like, uh, I, I, I get along with all generations and I can like get to that level. Um, as far as talking, of course, I don't understand that music because all good music died after 1960s. That's my opinion. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> the most controversial thing you said all day. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I thought I, I would do something like that. And yeah, uh, well, you'll the have other, to. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Henry. What, what, the other thing, and I think this one's a good one, Ryan, for the to 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 do a wrap up. Yeah, is still has been around for a while, around the block, as as he's as he's uh, uh, told us from his from his days at Monsanto, Kodak, Monsanto to consulting. Someone else getting into this, like what 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 piece of knowledge the the people that are left listening here knew. Uh, new technician or whatever, what advice would you give them if they're just entering metrology? Be open-minded. Because any any topic, any subject, in this day and age, and even before, you can't be specialized. You think you are specialized in metrology and then electrical or anything like that. You got to be open-minded because metrology really touches everything we do. And it changes. Uh, yeah. What you know, yeah. The the TR calculation you're doing today could be something different in a different risk method in the future from what you're doing today. We get more knowledge, the computers are better. We're doing- I, I was listening to some classical music the other day and I was thinking about the notes and I don't know anything about music except I like to listen to what appear appeals to my ears. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about like, well, how do they tune that, you know, instrument, whatever it is, whether it's a violin or a piano or a sitar or anything like that. And I said, yeah, there is probably math associated with that. So when I say oh, that, be open-minded is you will be surprised uh, what, you could learn and and a lot of the discoveries that are made is people have thought outside the box and uh, and that's what you have to be and you have to be that at every level and uh, you have to teach it to your children uh, to be open-minded uh, rethink because, rethink constantly <laughs> rethink your stance right yeah. What, what your bias today may change tomorrow. The, I always say, speak your own truth because your truth is always changing. You learn after yeah. after this. Hopefully, more people have learned and what they thought, you know, an hour before they sat down, or an hour and fifteen minutes before they listened to this, they may have shifted. They've learned something, and they may have shifted some of what they think. So, their truth today is going to be different than their truth tomorrow as far as if you're constantly learning and improving uh, that you're going to think maybe what I think today is actually wrong uh, after I've learned more and, and seen more and, and done more. Is that is that fair? Yep. Very sage advice. 
Well, can maybe we can have you come back down the road? Um, I, I feel like there's many topics that we can we can explore with you. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the time he sat next to Jeff Goldblum on an airplane. That has to be on the next. <laughs> that has to be how we start the next episode. <laughs> uh, it was a really real pleasure, Ryan, Henry. Yes, thank and, you. Yeah, I know. I don't know where this time flew by. So that was great. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to include this in our. Uh, here, I'll go ahead and do a sign out, and we can we can kind of just chat before we depart. Sure. Well, Della and and Henry, uh, once again, thank you for coming on the show and and helping me and helping um, arrange this. Henry, uh, having Dillip come on, Dillip, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor, and uh, I look forward to hopefully chatting with you in the future on the on the show, but then also, of course, MSC and NCSLI. Yes, and I look forward to doing that as well, and. Uh, yeah, I'll be glad to come come aboard uh, and do any other uh, chats or anything like that. And uh, it'll be really great to see you face to face. And uh, hopefully, uh, we'll make it to MSC and uh, none of this COVID or any other issues. Um, you know, help exactly. Kind of do. Hope that. not. Hopefully, we're at the end of it. Let's yeah. let's let's hope. And uh, South Park got it. If people watch South Park, there, there's some funny COVID episodes <laughs> for sure. If you want to laugh at it, it's not, it's what it is. But uh, yeah, try to bring some humor, humor to things because it's, uh, it's kind of depressing, right? It you is. Know. It's yeah. been a mess. Well, I think, I thank you both again. And, uh, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>